0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray for your help this evening. We pray that you would deal with us where we are. Deal with all our struggles and difficulties. And speak into our doubts, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Well, please sit down as you uh, sit down. If you could be turning back to the first of the passages that we had uh, read to us just a little while ago. So Matthew 28 and uh, verses uh, 16 through to 20. And you might also find amongst the papers that you were given on the way in a a handout. Uh, It looks like this. And you can use that to follow along as we go through this together. Now, we have a problem in our family. We have a problem getting our children to do things. Uh, These are things that we know that they'll enjoy when they get to it, uh, but they're very slow and reluctant to try them or to get out of the house. Even when we lived in Sydney for a few years, uh, this was still a problem. Uh, We were living about half an hour from some of the most exciting and beautiful beaches in the world, Uh, but could we persuade our kids to get out of the house. They simply didn't believe us when we told them they would love it. You might even go as far to say that they doubted us. We virtually had to drag them to the beach, kicking and screaming. Now, they always did love it when they got there, of course. That's my wife, Catherine, who feels this problem in our family most acutely because I'm definitely part of this big problem. It's very hard to get me to do anything at all, uh, especially on my day off, let alone do anything adventurous, where she, I'm sure, would uh, have us be rather like the Von Trapp family, climbing every mountain every weekend and singing while we do it. (laughs) Uh, But I think if we're honest, uh, we probably probably would have to admit that we have a similar and more serious problem as a church family. We are a a church family. I think it's right to call us that. And there are many of us here this evening who are true disciples of Jesus Christ, uh, people who recognize Jesus for who he is and indeed love him. And yet, and yet we struggle. We struggle to do what Jesus asks us to do. We struggle to be active in prayer and service and evangelism Uh, There's there's this gap that exists between what we profess to believe, what we say we know about the Lord Jesus, and what we practice. So I'm looking out now on, uh, what, maybe 300 or so people. What could God do with 300 or more active disciples in the city of Sheffield? It could be amazing, couldn't it? It could be simply staggering Uh, And if each one of us were to to, to trace this problem of our our reluctance to to do things uh, back to its source, I suspect that what we would find there is doubt, a a kind of lingering doubt. I know that's true for me. I doubt uh, the blessings of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I doubt that God will provide for me if I make sacrifices. I doubt that God will protect me if I'm persecuted on account of my testimony to Jesus. So what's to be done about this? What's to be done about all these uh, passive and lethargic disciples that we are? Well, what uh, lethargic Christians sometimes need is a a good, old-fashioned, rousing sermon. I can see that's what you're gagging for at the moment, a rousing sermon. And what better sermon for, for you to hear than the most famous sermon ever preached? And what we know is that the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's Gospel. And listening to the Sermon on the Mount is basically what we're going to be doing as a church family on Sunday evenings over the next three months, so we're going to have plenty of this. Nevertheless, as we embark upon this task, there is a difficulty, there is a problem. Many of you will have heard the Sermon on the Mount preached before, perhaps many times, as I have. But again, I think it's time for us to be honest here. We do need to be honest. Many times when we hear the Sermon on the Mount preached to us, It is not an encouraging experience. I think if we're honest, that is the truth of the situation. Sometimes this sermon, this wonderful sermon, just seems to be too difficult, too confusing. It seems to be setting up an unscalable moral mountain for us to climb. We simply, we read it and we simply cannot believe that it's possible to do what Jesus seems to expect us to do. That seems to be the difficulty as we read the Sermon on the Mount. Now, once again, I imagine it's the problem of doubt that's holding us back from putting it all into action. And these struggles to understand the sermon, that they almost certainly stem from ripping it out of its context in Matthew's gospel. So what we're going to do in this session and throughout the coming term is to, to see where this sermon sits in the big sweep of Matthew's account. More than that, we need to go, in fact, right to the end of Matthew's story. We need to go right to the end of... Of the Gospel, so the final few verses, in fact, which are often called uh, the Great Commission, and those are the verses that you have in front of you. You see, like a good detective story or a thriller, um, Matthew doesn't give us the key to understanding the mystery of Jesus' teaching until right at the very end of the story. Now, it's bad practice, I know, to read the end of a book first. I'm often telling off my mother about it, uh, because she does it all the time. But it's what we're going to do tonight. And what I hope we're going to see as we look at these verses together is that uh, these verses directly address the problem that that we're struggling with. The problem that stops us from hearing the Sermon on the Mount properly. The problem of doubt. And I hope that we're going to see that what Matthew wants to happen as we read uh, these few verses is for us as disciples. Disciples who doubt to be transformed. Transformed. So be transformed into disciples who make disciples, eager to learn how to do that from our teacher Jesus. And it's once we've got to that stage that we can go back and listen to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to split split that sentence I just read to you into four and tackle each part in sequence. So it's going to go like this. Uh, Part one, disciples who doubt. Secondly, transformed by the finished work of Jesus. Thirdly, into disciples who make disciples And then fourthly, eager to learn how to do that from our teacher, Jesus. So the starting point is this. Disciples who doubt. Disciples who doubt. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 28 and starting at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And uh, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubt it. I guess the first thing to notice here is that these are, these are people who know Jesus and they know who he is. Matthew says that when they saw him, they, they recognized him and indeed worshipped him. That is, they expressed in an, an attitude or gesture a complete dependence or submission to him as a, a divine figure. That's what that word worship means. Quite possibly by falling down and prostrating themselves before him. They absolutely recognised who he was. And yet, some doubted. Now, are these doubting people uh, different to those who are worshipping? Uh, some People when they're, they're, some preachers, when they're trying to, to, to preach these verses from the Great Commission, try to say that, that. There must be some other people there who are doubting while the, the eleven are, are worshipping. But that's really not how it reads here, is it? Matthew doesn't mention anyone else here. He just says, the eleven came and worshipped and some doubted. Or you could even translate it like this. This would be equally valid, I think. When they saw him, they worshipped. But they doubted, as simple as that. They worship, but they doubted. In other words, perhaps they all doubted. But certainly we may say at least some of those worshipping disciples doubted. It does at first seem a very odd combination, doesn't it? Worship and doubt. And yes, what a brilliantly accurate description of real life. Discipleship, this is what it's like being a disciple of Jesus, isn't it? In the real world, isn't it? As one writer puts it, this is the pattern of discipleship to the, to the end of the age. Believers caught between adoration on the one hand and doubt on the other. And it has been so, we're reminded in Matthew's Gospel, right from the beginning. This problem of doubt has been plaguing the disciples uh, throughout the Gospel so far. Uh, Jesus has used that word doubt and he's connected it with uh, another little term he likes to use, little faith. And uh, this doubt and little faith has stopped the disciples from being what they should be. It's the sort of doubt that's expressed in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus rebukes his disciples for being so desperately anxious about what they will eat or drink or wear. Uh, It's very close to home, isn't it? It's what African Christians find so puzzling about Western Christians, the effort we put into shoring up. Uh, our future with savings and pensions and insurance and the desperate worry that we go through when our, when our money dries up, but still, of course, leaves us many, many times richer than they are. It's that sort of doubt. It's the sort of doubt that it's, that's expressed in Matthew's Gospel when their disciples' lives are put under threat. So in a storm on the lake, Jesus says to them, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Later on, Jesus rebukes Peter, also on a lake, and says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It's the sort of doubt that leads the disciples to flee when Jesus is arrested. And leads Peter to deny him when he's put under pressure. It's also, of course, very close to home, isn't it? It's the sort of doubt that makes us today slow to talk openly about Jesus. Fearful of the consequences. And this is the sort of doubt that as Jesus is linked with the disciples' misunderstanding. Their little faith keeps them from seeing the big picture. They just muddle around, dimwittedly, obsessing over the trivialities of life. And again, it's very close to home, isn't it? That is much like us. It's a doubt they survived all the way through Matthew's Gospel. And you can see it here right at the very end, right in the very last few verses. Even seeing the risen Jesus hasn't completely quenched this doubt. Uh, and of course, it's it, it, it survived beyond that as we experience it today too. But the important thing to note here is that that doubt is not the note on which the Gospel ends. The key thing we learn at the end of the Gospel that, is that something has happened, something has happened that can change things. It can address that doubt. It doesn't automatically wipe it away. But it does mean that it can be addressed. And this is our second main point this evening. Something has happened which means that disciples who doubt can be transformed. They can be transformed by the finished work of Jesus. And the verse which declares that this new thing that makes uh, this possible is verse 18. Verse 18 of chapter 28. Then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's just a few words. It's uh, 12 words there in the English, nine in the original. Just a few words. But what what a statement. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, says Jesus. And I I desperately want you and I desperately want myself to feel the weight of those words, because it's only if we feel the gravity of what's happening at that moment that Jesus says them, that everything else is going to fall into place for us. You see, this is the completion of something that has been building and building over Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel tells us how God the Father has given his son Jesus a task to do. And because that task is now done in Jesus' death and resurrection, because that work is done, because it's finished, now he gives his son all authority in heaven and on earth. More than that, this is the culmination of something that has been building and building over the whole Bible story. And now... It is finished. Now there are many ways we can talk about the finished work of Jesus because there are many ways in which the Bible writers describe the work Jesus was given to do. Uh, I'm just going to quickly sketch three of them, three of them that connect with the way Matthew talks about it. and Hopefully uh, we can pick up a sense of the what you might call the epic grandeur of the Bible story and how the different parts and patterns of the Bible all come together in Jesus and what he has done and all come and focus down in this one Glorious statement that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. This is the first way of thinking about it. The finished work of Jesus. The finished work of Jesus is the finished work of the Son and the Servant of the Lord. You might know if you know your Old Testament that the Servant of the Lord is a central figure in the prophecy of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Where God's people have failed, the Servant takes on their punishment. He bears the curse for them. What's more, he takes on their role of bringing transformation in the world and the light of salvation to the nations. Now, Matthew, in his gospel, has insisted that Jesus has taken on that role. He's taken on the work of Isaiah's servant. At his own baptism, he accepted it from his father. In his death on the cross, he bore the judgment and curse for many, bringing the forgiveness of their sins. That work is now completed it is finished and Isaiah says that when the servant's curse-bearing work is done he will quote be given the spoils of victory the servant will be given the spoils of victory we'll look at verse 18 again and see how this is happening right at this very moment and Jesus said to them all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth Here's the second way of putting it. The finished work of Jesus is the finished work of the Son of Man. Prophet Daniel now. The prophet Daniel had a vision recorded for us in Daniel chapter 7. The cosmos turned upside down, broken apart. The earth in conflict with heaven. And on earth, tyrants trample God's people like grotesque beasts trampling on people. But God passes judgments on the beasts and restores The good order of things. And one like a Son of Man approaches him and is given an everlasting kingdom, restoring the cosmos, reuniting heaven and earth in their proper order. Now, again, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has insisted that he has personally taken on that role, the role of this Son of Man. And again, just look at how that Son of Man event is shown to be happening right here. In Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Well, here's a third way of putting it. The finished work of Jesus is the finished work of the son of David. You'll know that King David was, of course, a great king in Israel's history. Uh, Nevertheless, even, even he failed to live up to the expectations of God's king. In Psalm 2, for example, God says that the king, or Christ, will do what David never did and defeat all God's enemies. And then God promises him, promises the king, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. Now, right at the beginning of his Gospel, Matthew has described Jesus as the son of David. David's greater son, who is called Christ. Well, again, just look at how all that was promised to Israel's king in Psalm 2 is now given to Jesus. Verse 18 again. Jesus came and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This declaration of Jesus, meaning that the work given to him by his father is finished, should be, is enough to deal with doubt. If only we would feel its gravity The finished work of Jesus means that the sin which has held God's people back for centuries and which threatens to hold us back too has been dealt with once and for all through Jesus' death on the cross. The finished work of Jesus means that the hope of life and blessing promised by God to those who trust him is now guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection. In Jesus' resurrection the promise is made visibly credible. The finished work of Jesus means that now we see that Jesus has already basically won the conflict with God's enemies. Ultimately, there's no one left to fear except God himself. The heavens and the earth are Jesus' domain. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All of which means, all of which means that disciples who doubt can be released to serve. In May 1738, uh, Charles Wesley began reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians uh, while he was ill, and that was a useful time for him. uh, As he heard afresh the grace of God poured out through Christ Jesus, Uh, he wrote in his diary that he felt the Spirit of God striving with his spirit uh, till, quote, By degrees, he chased away the darkness of my unbelief, dealt with my doubt. I found myself convinced. I now found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in hope of loving Christ. A few days later, his brother John was at a meeting at at Aldersgate Street in London when he heard the same wonderful news uh, from a reading of Luther's uh, preface to, to, to the book of Romans. And he went home and wrote... The now famous line, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Charles and John Wesley were two men who saw and understood the finished work of Jesus so clearly that it revolutionized their ministry. It addressed the kind of doubts that had been holding them back in Christian love and service. It didn't, as it happens, this is important to remember, remove their doubt completely. And John Wesley especially uh, continued to struggle with doubt until his dying breath. But it did enough. It removed the obstacle of doubt enough for God to nonetheless use both of them as extraordinary instruments in the world. Extraordinary instruments in his transforming work in the world. And that I guess is what we're aiming for. As I put it on the handout, we're aiming for an understanding of what it means to to be a a disciple, what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus. A true disciple of Jesus has been drawn into the finished work of Jesus. A true disciple of of Jesus has been served by the servant, the work of the servant of the Lord. A true disciple of Jesus has been served by the servant and then incorporated into all that the servant is doing, all that Jesus is doing, continuing to do in his world. Now, of course, that does raise the question, doesn't it? What is this thing that Jesus is still doing in the world? We've talked about the finished work of Jesus, but what's the unfinished work of Jesus? Now, it's interesting here to note that Matthew also describes uh, Jesus at the beginning of the gospel as the son of Abraham. Uh, You may well know that God promised Abraham that he would bless the whole world. It's one of the foundational promises of the Bible, well, that is the unfinished work which Jesus' disciples are drawn to participate in. And you can see that uh, the way that Jesus himself describes that work here, and this is our third main point this evening. Matthew wants, his, wants disciples who doubt to be transformed, to be transformed into the disciples who make disciples. Verse 19, Jesus says this Go, therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. In other words, what Jesus has done allows him to incorporate the disciples into a task which God's people have failed at in the past. They failed at lamentably in the past, this task of taking the light of salvation out into the world it's a task that uh, jesus himself so far he's the only one who's been involved in it so far only jesus has made people his disciples but now something has changed now he commissions the 11 his disciples to join him in that task this task of making disciples of all the nations Just last week, I was away with the rest of the staff team uh, talking about this very task. And uh, we've been thinking through all the different things we do as a church family and trying to make sure that it is focused on this task. Us being disciples, making disciples. We want to strip away everything that's not focused on this task. So you're very likely to hear much more about this idea of disciples making disciples in the coming months. But what does it mean? Well, you can see that making disciples here has two parts to it. So verse 19, baptizing people. And then verse 20, teaching them. Now, the first of those might surprise you. And I think that this is the part which puzzles puzzles most people when they read uh, the Great Commission. Why is Jesus talking about baptism? Uh, Well, let me see if I can explain that. Explain this well. It's very helpful, I think, here to remember Jesus, his own baptism in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's described this right at the beginning of his account, and uh, he's described how as Jesus was baptised, he was publicly taking on the work that we've been talking about—the the work his father was giving him as servant of the Lord. Like the Spirit, if you remember, descended like a dove. Uh, showing that Jesus was divinely equipped for the task he was given. And his father declared that he was well pleased with his beloved son. And so we've got a pattern there, haven't we? A father, son, and spirit working together as Jesus takes on this work at the beginning of the gospel. And perhaps not surprisingly, the baptism of Jesus' disciples is to have the same kind of pattern to it. That's because they're becoming a part of the continuation of Jesus' work as the servant of the Lord, taking light to the nations. They are served by him, but then they are incorporated into him, drawn into his ongoing work of bringing light to the nations. They're brought into all of this, as we've been seeing, through Jesus the Son. Through Jesus the Son, they come to call God Father. And then just like Jesus in his earthly ministry, they're equipped by the Spirit for the task that they've been given to do. So it's the same again, isn't it? Father, Son, and Spirit working together. But this time, it's slightly different. They're working together with us. As Jesus promises them at the end of verse 20, Surely I am with you in this task to the very end of the age. So making disciples means baptizing people, incorporating them into God's family, into the family business of taking the light of salvation to the nations. Uh, And then, verse 20, it means teaching them. And it's the teaching here that's what what makes this a continuous growing cycle, a cycle which spreads the light of salvation to the corners of the earth. I I hope you can see how that works. So these, these 11 disciples, they're given the task of making disciples. That's verse 19. Uh, which, of course, includes teaching them what they've been commanded by Jesus. That's verse 20. But, of course, what they've been commanded by Jesus culminates in this command, verse 19, to make disciples. So that group of disciples then make further disciples. And so it goes on to the end of the age, spreading the light of salvation to the ends of the earth. But look at verse 20 again. Jesus says this, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Everything. Now you know that there's teaching from Jesus spread right across Matthew's gospel. Uh, But Matthew's gospel is distinctive for having five really substantial sections of teaching from Jesus spread through his account. And the first of those, the very first of those, is, you guessed it, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew wants disciples who doubt, transformed into disciples who make disciples, and finally, disciples who are eager to learn how to do that from their teacher, Jesus. Eager to learn how to do that from their teacher, Jesus. Beginning with the Sermon on the Mount and at last we can turn back to Matthew chapter 5 Matthew chapter 5 beginning at verse 1 you'll find that on page 968 this is how the Sermon begins now when Jesus saw the crowds he went up on a mountainside and sat down his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And now I think we can approach this sermon from a very different perspective. When Jesus saw the crowds, he was seeing people who are not yet disciples, people who need to be made into disciples. And he went up onto a mountainside so that everyone could hear him and he sat down to teach. And what I hope, I'm hoping we're going to see in the coming weeks, in the coming months, is that what he teaches the disciples in the hearing of the crowd is the foundations of what they need to know and do in order to make disciples of people like the people in the crowd that are around them. But to do that not just for crowds like this one, but to do that all over the world, in all the nations. In other words, what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is teaching his disciples the foundations of mission. Now what that means, once I've grasped it, is that I can start to think about myself in a quite different way. And I can look at all these faces in front of me and think about you in quite a different way. We can think about ourselves as missionary kids. Missionary kids are sometimes thought of as a slightly quirky, special kind of Christian, the children of parents involved in cross cultural mission of some sort, overseas mission perhaps. But I have news for you. According to Matthew, we are all missionary kids. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you've been brought into a missionary family by Jesus the Son. You get to call God your Father. You get to live in his family, under his approval, under his protection, under his provision. You have been equipped by the Spirit of God for the missionary task that you've been given to do, which is making disciples in all the nations. I mentioned at the beginning the struggle we uh, sometimes have in our family to get our children to get, get, our children to get up and do something that, that, that would be good to do. And yes, as we've been thinking about this evening, there can be and are similar struggles in God's missionary family. But if only we would have ears to hear afresh what God has done through Jesus, uh, what he is doing in Jesus now. If only we would hear how we can and should be a part of all that well that really should get us going and it should also make us want to learn as much as we can about jesus from jesus about how to go about it so not only do we get sent out into the world we're also we're going to see get sent back into the classroom to learn from jesus over the next three months and it does fill me with some hope And some excitement as I look out at you all to think about the enormous potential of what Jesus might do with us. Uh, Remembering his words as we do so. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to come before you now and uh, confess before you uh, that we are held back by doubt. Uh, We want to be open with you and with one another. That that does hold us back from doing the things that we ought to do in terms of love and service, missionary, mission and evangelism. Lord, have mercy on us. Deal with us. Show us afresh the finished work of Jesus. Show us afresh the curse taken. Show us afresh his resurrection life. Show us afresh his work. And bring us into the great work that he is continuing to do in all the world. Inspire us with it, we pray. And we ask it in his name. Amen.